Welcome to Documentary First, an inside look at a documentary filmmaker's journey. I'm your host, Josh Lindsay from the Movie Proposal Podcast. And with us is our documentary filmmaker, Christian Taylor. Hey, Josh. Hi, Christian. And also with us is our couldn't do it without him, trusty dusty, research extraordinaire, button pushing guy, Jason Rugg. Hey there. Hey, Jason. All right. We are in part two of a, what is supposed to be a three series, but I'm predicting it's going to be longer than three series <laughs> uh, recap of distribution. Um, but uh, We'll call it a limited series. Limited series. There we go. Yeah. A limited series. Uh, learning about distribution. Uh, if you did, if you missed last week's and you need to go listen to that, we're talking about Christian's distribution deal and uh, how unfortunately it went south and they had to part ways how that went down but we're going to learn how it all got started but before we do that christian are there any updates with any of the film projects you're currently working on <laughs> sure well one thing i did realize after last week's podcast i said i was going to give the first initial of this distributor at the end of every podcast and i forgot to do it so the first initial of um, this distributor from last week's podcast is f so that's what i should have said at the end of last week's podcast um so f as in frank um, that's the first initial. Um, moving on, just to give you an update for what's been happening in terms of the, the distribution relationship over the past week, uh, we still never did get a response in any way to our termination letter, which had a lot of other things in there that should have been responded to. No response at all and no payment. We didn't expect the, you know, we didn't expect to be paid, honestly, but we did think there would be a reply. So far, nothing. Uh, the other thing that didn't seem to be happening was we weren't being taken down off of the platforms. They did immediately take us off of YouTube, um, iTunes Canada and iTunes US. Um, so then we started working um, to try to get us off Hoopla, Voodoo, the Cineplex store in Canada and Shaw Cable Company in Canada. I'm happy to say we are now off of all of those platforms. Um, ben Fythan, my business operations guy, uh, was really great at researching how to find these people. They're usually pretty challenging to find. Uh, and so I wrote them all directly. And really, it was very easy to be taken off their platform. I mean, within an hour of writing them, um, the Girl Who Wore Freedom was off their platform. So that's exciting because now we can look for new distribution um, you know, elsewhere. Uh, the other thing that was interesting in this um, I learned that I learned when I wrote uh, Voodoo, um, they told me that they took it down, but they explained to me if we Googled the girl who wore freedom on Voodoo, you would still see it there, but there wouldn't be a rent or buy option. It's there so that if someone rented or bought it previously, you know, they still have, they still can go back there and access the film. So, um, so that was interesting to know, um, but I was relieved to know that. So I wouldn't keep Googling it and thinking it was up there. Um, so that's all that's happened in terms of uh, distribution. We have reached out to one distributor and asked them if they would be interesting in distributing The Girl Who Wore Freedom. So we're waiting to hear back from that. And then we are moving forward with all of our other events um, that are coming up in May and June and just making plans for that. So that's the update. What, you mentioned a while ago, one of your partners, and I don't know if you mentioned this on the podcast or off the podcast, I apologize, 
But I thought you said you had a partner who, once you were broken free from the previous distributor, this guy was going to get you with a, another distributor or work towards something. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? I do know what you're talking about. I may have said that maybe offline. I don't know, okay. but it, do, it doesn't really matter because we have reached out to that person um, and we are hoping that um, we would get picked up for distribution. Now, um, I can tell you uh, one exciting thing that I did forget to mention is it looks like that Joe Amaday, who's a friend of the show and been on here before, he also owns Virgil Films. We have never had uh, European distribution, um, but he is going to go to the Cannes Film Market at the end of May, and he is going to take our film and represent our film to try to get some European distribution. So that's that's an exciting thing. That would be really great because none of our um, fans in Europe have been able to watch the film at all. So I'm really hoping that something great will come from that. So that is exciting news. Do, do you know much about the differences between distribution overseas versus the United States in terms of, let's say, you know, money-making opportunities? Is it worse? Is it better? Same? Um, I know very little. What I know is that over there, it is very different than here. Um, I know that distributors look at properties and they want what they call, you know, the big whale is they want North American rights. So every distributor everywhere wants North American rights because they care about that market more than anywhere else. So the European market is pretty much lumped together. And there are a lot of places where, you know, you go over there, MIP TV, real um, sunny side of the dock. Uh, the Cannes film market. There are um, countries going to these markets and buying up media for their platforms. And every um, outlet over there has a different requirement or is looking for different things, just like here in the US. Um, recently, I had someone reach out who um, is a European distributor and they were looking for content for Russia. And what's interesting, I was talking to Joe Amade about this. He's like, all of a sudden, we've been getting all of these emails of people that are looking for content for Russia. He's like, I, I've been in this business 25 years. Nobody's ever asked me for content to, for Russia. I have no idea. So I sent them my film and I said, you know, are you interested in this? And she wrote back and said, no, because it's only, uh, it's 89 minutes. We only want content for, for 60 minute windows. So, you know, they have different requirements and things like that. My guess is the fees that they pay are a lot lower. Um, so I will learn about this European distribution. It's even a little bit more scary for me because I know so much less. I mean, you know, distribution is, is like a, you know, cloudy lake in the first place, but in the US, but going over to Europe, you don't, how are you going to know people, whether they're trustworthy or not, unless you have a trusted partner that knows someone else. So this is going to be a new journey. I don't know how it's going to go. I do trust Joe very much. He has been over to the Cannes film market many times. He knows the business. So I am going to just have to put things in his lap and trust him. All right. Well, hey, let's get back to uh, the United States um, and how you got started in this distribution deal uh, to begin with. So how, how did you even know how to start searching and how did you find this company to eventually partner with? 
Yeah. So in the very beginning, the whole distribution journey um, for us started with uh, the first email we got from Seven Palms Entertainment. So of course, when I got that first email of we're really interested in your project, this was before I had ever, um, I think, shot a thing. I think I was still trying to raise money and to make the thing. If, if it was after, I'd have to go back and look at my emails. It was like right after. So it was like really very, very early on. Seven Palms Entertainment was a brand new distribution company, young guys, um, you know, and they were, they walked with us and we were very interested in working with them. We liked how they thought they were going to market the movie. Um, you know, they talked with us all throughout the beginning stages of, of, of this journey Um but in the end, because they were so small and because we didn't really think that they were thinking the right way about distributing the film, uh, we decided not to go with Seven Palms Entertainment. Um, right around the time we made that decision, we entered something called the Trailer Film Festival. The Trailer Film Festival, we entered before we ever made the movie and we stuck our trailer in there, hoping to look for a, distrib- a distributor. Um, there was, uh, that was the prize that if you got into the film of the trailer film market, then you would be exposed to all different types of distributors who would watch your film. So we got into this very narrow um, group of people and we were approached by this distributor that we eventually signed with from the very, very beginning. And that deal was ultimately signed in September of 2020. We were in Boston when I got that news, and that was before our very first film festival. So it was very early on. Um, They, you know, watched our trailer at uh, that trailer film festival. They wrote the um, people that run that and said, we'd love to a copy. And she put us in contact. They said, we'd love to watch your film. I sent them the screener link. They watched the film and said, oh, this is fantastic. We want to distribute it. And then talks ensued. And so we had several um, calls with them to try to get to know them, understand their uh, philosophy of distribution. They then sent us a uh, template distribution agreement, which when we got it, was odd like we all thought this is really odd they're still they're talking in a strange way in terms of uh the property like they were it was called a videogram contract and so we kind of wrote a lot of that off to it being that they were not a united states distributor um but also it just seemed like a very old contract like it hadn't been renewed or updated and so we did have to make a lot of changes to the contract, update it, change the terms. And we thought, well, we'll change these terms, make them a lot more to our liking. And if they accept it, great. And so that's what happened. Uh, did you get this far with any other distributors? That was the only distributor that, that reached out to us until the spring of 2020 one but by then you're i'd already signed a contract yep yeah and so i think that was the that was the thing we were just now starting our film festival run which was you know september of 2020 and it was the we'd really only had contact with these two distributors and by the way i did i do think young distributors like seven palms entertainment they're watching imdb and they're looking for projects that are just coming out and they're beginning to, you know, I do feel like, in fact, both of these distributors in the beginning recognized that this property was a first-time filmmaker 
and their main objective is just to have their movie seen. And that's true. At the beginning, I didn't think that I would ever make a dime off of this film and that if we could just get it seen, then that would be a win for us. And so that was you know, a very attractive thing that our film was going to be seen. Um, but I do think that you know, distribution companies are kind of trolling IMDb or the internet to find new properties in production. Um, and that's when, and they start reaching out to you early to build that relationship so that hopefully you'll sign with them when your project is done. Um, but, you know, up until I've only talked to three distributors ever, Seven Palms Entertainment, the one we signed with, and then Joe Amade when he finally discovered our film in the spring of 2021. But by that time, it was too late. So you had uh, at least two reach out to you. Did you guys do much trying to reach out yourselves, like, you know, send the film to distributors? No, that usually doesn't happen. They don't take your call. That's part of the problem. So like okay. filmmakers are usually, you know, at the mercy of being discovered. And in the old days, um, when there was a vibrant film festival community before COVID, a lot of the distributors would go to the film festivals to see the films and see the audience's reaction. And that's been really important for distributors because they want to know how the people respond to the property. So, um, you know, not, not being in a film festival, you have less of an opportunity to be discovered by a distributor. And um, so, it, and we were born in COVID, really. Everything started in COVID. So not only um, didn't we get to go to any film festivals or, or very few, distributors just didn't go. And so there was no meeting them and stuff like that. Um, now, I will tell you one other experience I just recalled when I was saying that I didn't have any other uh, contact with any other distributors. I left one out. And one of the distributors that I did have contact with was, um, it was very interesting. We won distribution, and I've probably talked about this on the podcast before. We won distribution uh, at the Chagrin Film Festival. And the prize was distribution with Gravitas Ventures. They are a big distributor in the marketplace. And they are known for, you know, buying up a lot of properties and they see which one kind of takes off. They choose which one to put their advertising dollars behind. Um, and when I, when I got into the film festival, uh, they talked to me, I guess when I got into the finals, they didn't tell me that I was one of, they told me I was one of three in the category that would win distribution with Gravitas. And they asked me if I had distribution yet. And I told them that I hadn't um signed anything yet and I was interested in what the distribution terms were and they told me they couldn't tell me the distribution terms until I actually won so I did win the award and there was a big announcement by the people at Gravitas um congratulations we offer you distribution and then I never heard anything from them they did not reach out they did not give me an offer and finally, I had to um, write the film festival and be like, nobody's ever reached out to me. What's happening here? And finally, after about a month or so, um, I did he you know, hear from Gravitas directly. And their offer was so abhorrent. It was like it was made to assure that I wouldn't take it. It was like yeah. 15 years. They would do no marketing for it. You know, it was just 
it was ridiculous. I, I, it was crafted so that I wouldn't take. Did you by chance communicate that to the film festival? It's a good question. I don't think I did. I'm just, you know, I I wonder if they know that, um, uh, and if they didn't know that, would they be interested in knowing that? I mean, we can only speculate, but, um, because it sounds probably good. it sounds good on paper, you know, to advertise like, hey, you can win distribution here, you know, and and but you know, behind the scenes, they all know this is just for marketing purposes. Not no one's really going to do it. But um, yeah, I should probably let them know that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got you got bigger fish to fry. Um, you had mentioned with the distributing company you went with, you discussed their distribution philosophy. What what does that even look like? I feel like, you know, when we were talking with them, their strategy was, you know, we're going to take the film, we are going to shop it out to all of the cable channels and the streaming services. And, you know, we're going to do that for all of our contacts in North America and Canada. I mean, in North America, the US and Canada. And so I was, I felt like you know, they were saying to us, we have good contacts at these places um, and we're going to work to get your um, film distributed. Well, when it came time to actually distribute the film around late May in 2021, they there was no talk about, you know, about platforms they had pitched to exactly what happened. Um, and basically they were going straight to the transactional platforms like iTunes. And I said, well, hang on a second. You haven't even really pitched it to all of these other places. Well, we sent it to Netflix and we send it to, I don't know, maybe it was like five different places they said, and nobody wants it, but they didn't give me any details at all. Uh, they're just like, you know, and I said, well, isn't it important to make sure you exhaust all of your you know, big options before you start on transactional. And they told me, well, it doesn't work that way anymore. You can just release it everywhere all at once. And, you know, and at that point I didn't have, you know, I don't have a lot of sway anymore. Um, so basically their plan was to just put it on transactional platforms and go from there. So um, you, you made changes in the contract they agree to them. Looking back, are there changes you wish you would have made that you didn't? Great question. Yes. A hundred percent. Yes. First thing I wouldn't have done is I wouldn't have signed a five-year contract. The second thing I wouldn't have done is I never paid attention to the fact that if they did not cure their breach. So for example, in our agreement, it said, they needed to give a re- quarterly report and then they needed to give a payment at the time of the report. And they had 90 days with which to turn that in. Um, I've now learned that 60 days is more, um, is the industry standard. So I certainly would have changed it to 60 days. I would have loved to have changed it to 30 days. Um, you know, I did talk to Joe and Joe said 60 days is standard. And you know, sometimes it does take a while for all the proceeds to come in for the quarter and then for them to make the report and, and send the money. So um, I would have at least changed that for sure. Okay. Um, so once, once you have the contract, uh, you, you've talked about this a little bit. Once you have the contract cemented, you know, what, what was the very, I mean, were you just kind of, I mean, did the relationship, from my perspective, it seemed like 
the relationship ended like they just took over and you're kind of like trying to peek over the like hey you know what's going on guys you know like um because it seemed like there was more communication on before the contract and less after is that fair to say in retrospect when i look back one of the big things that i had a red flag about that i did not pay attention to was i kept wanting to have more meetings in the very beginning to understand who they were as people and I could never get them to do a Zoom call with me. I got them to do one Zoom call where the leader was kind of, I could see the side of his face, but it was blurry. He wasn't really looking me in the eye. Um, and the other person was not even on camera at all. And so I never had any real quote unquote FaceTime with them. They didn't like talking on the phone and they only wanted to deal with emails. So if I look back now, the red flags were, you know, the, the contract that seemed very outdated um, and, and not really relevant anymore. And the fact that they weren't very open with face-to-face -face communication um, and they weren't responsive to emails. And that continued to be a problem all the way along, not being very responsive to calls, not wanting to talk on the phone, only wanting to deal in emails and not being responsive in emails. Um, and that was even happening during the negotiations. So I wish I would have paid atten more attention to that. Um, we did talk to other filmmakers that were represented, but you know, how do you know that they're not, you know, plants really, you know, we asked uh, this distributor to send us some filmmakers that they had worked with to talk with them and ask their opinion. Um, and they said great things about working with this distributor. So, um, and then, you know, the challenge all the way along was just that they would just tell us they were doing things and they would ask us to do the marketing. Um, I think that was another thing I didn't understand in the beginning. I said to them at one point, I really want to be involved in the marketing of this film and in, you know, decisions and things like that. And they said, oh yeah, we really want that. We want that. Well, now I look back and I'm like, they needed that. You know, they, when I looked at their, um, one thing I didn't pay attention to at the time was their social media presence. And so the main way that I've watched them market is on social media, um, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And I, at some point, I think when we were going to launch, I then paid attention to the numbers and I'm like, they hardly have any followers. How are they going to market our film to people? Well, what was happening was I was doing their work. My team was doing all of their marketing and all of the selling of the film on all of our social media channels that were really healthy, as well as all the in-person entertainment or venues I was doing, as well as all of our film festivals. So, you know, what happened was I was their marketing arm. I was making all the sales and all of the money was going straight into their pocket. What this makes me think of is, you know, there's no classes, you know, no degrees and, you know, here, here, here's this, how to do everything. And so you can just watch a class online or take a class in school and learn how to do this. You learn as you go. And like, you know, if you're going to open a restaurant, you know, you got to create relationships with you know, let's say a food company that's going to deliver food and, and you just don't know, like, you know, you're, you should never do business with, you know, fill in the blank, but you don't know that until you do business with fill in the blank. And then you find out why you should never do business with them. Um, 
but you, you can't learn that unless someone tells you who's a little further down the road. But those people are usually busy making their next film or opening their next restaurant or whatever it is they're doing, right? You know, so unfortunately, a lot of this is learn as you go. Um, so, yeah, I, guess- I mean, the, the other challenge is like you can't research distribution deals and come up with very much information about, you know, the actual deals. Like, you know, what distribution deal a movie had or how much was, you know, what are the percentages supposed to be? Or there's just this big, black, murky, you know, lake that you can't really see into at all until you're sort of in it. And it varies by, um, you know, filmmaker or by distribution company. Um, Every filmmaker has a different experience, I'm sure. Mine is just one. Although I will say the the horror stories that I have heard from filmmakers um, and their distribution deals are many. It's not an uncommon problem. I even talked to a filmmaker the other day and he said, you know, I used to work for a company back in the, a distribution company back in the nineties. And it's sad to say, but we did exactly what the one you're complaining about and the relationship you just broke off. We were doing that exact same thing with filmmakers. Hmm. We were making our projects. We would distribute their films. We would use their proceeds to fund our projects and we would pay them whenever they would start squawking. And I was like, interesting. <laughs> Do you, interesting. I mean, look, obviously hindsight's twenty twenty. But since you really only talk to, I mean, you end up talking to three different distributors, but really in the beginning, it was only one. Do you feel part of it was, and this is too strong of a word, but, you know, just desperation where I'm like, oh my gosh, I've got someone interested in me and I, I don't know if I'll find anyone else. And, and so was that part of, do you think, leading into this deal? Absolutely. I was young. I really wanted distribution. I doubted myself. I didn't understand. I mean, at that point, I hadn't been in any film festivals. I hadn't won any awards. I didn't really know on the market how good this film was. And so I think what it told me was I should have slowed down and and waited longer. But there was there was a timeline thing happening, right? Because this movie like David Patterson has been on this film before and he talks about the indie funk, you know, the indie films that uh, started out and they haven't really done a lot. They're lying around and people, you know, don't really buy them up. Well, um, we were just starting out. I could have waited a little longer, um, but I felt like, gosh, you know, I wanted it to be out by D-Day. Um, so 2021 of, of June 6th of 2021. And so I did feel an urgency to sign on with a distributor. The other thing was, I really, my faith comes into play here. I really do believe that um, God was leading me. And I trusted if I was doing my due diligence, that, um, you know, I would be walking in the right path. Now, some people might argue, well, do you think he wasn't leading you now that you went into the wrong path? And my, my answer to that is oftentimes I feel like we are led to places where, you know, good things may not happen, bad things may happen, but it can ultimately be for our good. And I will say in this situation, it has been bad. It's been super bad on an emotional level, on a financial level. Um, but there are lots of good things coming from it. Um, the fact now that I am free of a distribution contract that I signed that actually wasn't really in my best interest, that's a good thing. 
um, what I've learned now going forward uh, is going to be extremely valuable. Um, so I just, I still believe I did my due diligence. I did what I could. And I, you know, I am trusting that all will be well in the end. Well, I, it doesn't sound like your situation doesn't sound unusual in the sense that, you know, like I mentioned, you know, you learn as you go, there is no textbook to follow. And, you know, life is about, you know, getting, you know, bopped on the nose and deciding, you know, do I sit down or do I keep going? And uh, that's just, <laughs> it's just the way it is, you know, and so good or bad um, isn't the issue. It's, are you going to keep going? And so you're obviously uh, going, which is good. So um, we're, we're getting um, towards the end. I want to, maybe we could do a preview for uh, next week's podcast in terms of our limited series. You know, what, what topics do you want to cover next week? Well, let's look at the list of things that we uh, have on our little question sheet here. Have you asked all of the ones on our sheet? No, of course not. I, <laughs> <laughs> and if I put you on the spot, you know, we can just say it's going to be a mystery, everyone. You're just going to have to show up to find out. That's, that's more interesting. <laughs> well, one thing I will say is... Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's still more to discuss in terms of um, maybe what I will do different going forward, but I do think there are a few more nuts and bolts questions we can go over in terms of what a contract looks like. Um, and There you go. Let's talk about some of the specifics of the contract and then going forward, what will you do differently? Yeah, sounds good. Jason, write that down because I'm not going to remember this next week. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing I do want to say about your last question is, I think one thing I have learned um, in regard to that desperation question that you asked, um, I don't feel desperate anymore because I've realized there are a lot of opportunities for the film out there. Um, and thankfully, ours is an evergreen film. It's, it's going to be around for every D-Day or Veterans Day. or And there are lots of different places that it can be marketed. There are many schools and veterans organizations. There's lots of places overseas in France or England where this film um, can be shown. And so uh, I just, I feel like it's, it's okay to be more patient with what happens with your film and not be so stressed about it. Well, I think that's a good uh, takeaway is perspective. You know, you obviously had a different perspective when you initially signed on to this contract, you have a different perspective now, and it's much more hopeful. Um, and th think, you know, you have a view that you, you know, did not have or could not have, you know, a year or two ago. And so I think that's good. I mean, that's for sure. You're not just because a relationship with your distributor ended doesn't mean the film is over or you're ruined or anything like that. You know, it's just, yeah, it's a relationship. Time to move on. There's lots more out there. So, yeah. All right. Well, now it is time of our show that we like to call DocuVu. Oh my gosh. I can't even do this. <laughs> <laughs> this title it's so hard to stay. <laughs> we so, Je Jeff said he changed it because it's easier to say. So DocuView yeah. Deja Vu. <laughs> Let's try that again. Yeah. Now it's time for DocuView Deja Vu. Deja Dagummit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna try. Or other. Actually, yeah. let's let Jason do it. Jason, you do it. 
No, I can't say it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go. Now it's time for that segment we like to call DocuView Deja Vu. DocuView Deja Vu. All right, I'll, I'm going to go first so I can just get this over with because um, I'm having, I don't know, I just, I was doing fine and then that title threw me. Um, but uh, okay, the movie I'm bringing to the table, and I know I've talked about this on the movie proposal podcast. I don't think I've brought it up here. It's the 2018 documentary, Three Identical Strangers. Oh, I love that one so much. Oh, that's a good one. Um, Jason, have you seen it? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I I feel like I can't remember any specific moments from it, but I just remember being like blown away by the entire premise because it, it is a crazy story. Yeah, it's a, it's a true story. Um, you know, separated at birth type of story and, and how they come together and what happens. Um, I think it's part fascinating because of what happens. It's also very sad because of what happens, you know, but uh, I think it's a well-produced documentary. It's uh, again, three identical strangers. It's only what, five years old. So it's not that old, but we're, yeah, we're you know, it's, that was one of the ones I discovered uh, flying and I found it at the same time I found Generation Wealth. And it was another one I watched in terms of how to weave stories together. So uh, they, you know, they tell it from several, I think um, the three identical strangers, um, they tell it from some of those perspectives. I'm not going to elaborate more, but they kind of wove those stories together and how they tell, told one unified story. And so um, I just thought it was I thought it was masterful the way that it was put together, but the story itself is just, you can't even believe it. Right. It's one of those stories, like when you watch this film, you think, how have I not heard of this before? This is, you know, but anyhow, uh, Jason, what, what are you bringing to the table? Inspired by a, a show that's coming out right now. It reminded me of, of this documentary, uh, The Inventor, Out hmm. for Blood in Silicon Valley. Haven't heard of this. You haven't heard of this? Okay. So do do either of you remember uh, Elizabeth Holmes? Yes. She created this, you know, this tiny little blood thing that would give you like a scan of a a million different, you know, whatever. And it was all a scam and didn't work and it was all made up. And so this was the documentary about her life and how she came to do what she did. And now there's a miniseries out called The The Dropout, uh, which is on Hulu. Um, And you can watch um, The Inventor... Uh, out for blood in silicon valley on hbo max it's Wait, a fascinating awesome. look is that new uh so the inventor is not the dropout is brand new it like just i okay. think the finale was last week and just to be clear i mean it if i as i remember reading the real story in the news she really started off to do a good thing she yeah. wanted yeah she wanted to do the thing that she but it all became this huge lie because what she wanted to do was actually impossible and she didn't want to adjust her uh equipment or machines or what the actual cost was to actually make it possible and so yeah her whole thing was that you would only need a drop of blood to get a ton of different um uh information but that's just it's physically impossible because there's just at this point there's no way you could do all those tests off of one drop of blood you need vials and vials and vials as anyone who's had blood drawn will tell you they need to draw a lot of individual vials to figure it out and so it was she didn't want to lie she didn't she actually wanted to do this thing 
and she failed and lied to investors and she was worth like 4.5 billion dollars or something and now yeah. she has you know nothing i mean she's her husband has a ton of money and she lives in a really expensive house in silicon valley to this day and i think she's on trial for something but i, yeah, I don't remember I, exactly. she is on <laughs> she, she is on trial and i mean i think if she is convicted it'll be a very bad she will not be living in a posh thing in silicon valley anymore yeah um, i guess so yeah yeah Okay, that's awesome. Thank you for bringing that up. So I'm going to talk about a documentary series. Um, and it's called Wild Wild Country. Have either one of you seen that? <laughs> um, is that about the town like in the Pacific Northwest and some guy comes to town? Like, uh, it's like a cult, right? Yes. So it's about the Rajneeshis. Yeah. In Oregon, and I think it's Antelope, Oregon. I'm not really sure, uh, but the movie is called Wild Wild Country, and it's directed by Chapman Way and McLean Way. So I guess they're related, uh, and it is um, it is mind boggling. This is one of those things where you watch it and you go, "How in the world did I not know this was happening?" And it was happening in the late '80s. You know, I was I was you know a young adult. You would think that I would have heard about it or because it was on the news but basically it is this um cult that ended up taking over literally a huge town in or a small town in oregon and it became uh, you know it was just it, it, it's mind-boggling to think anything like that could have ever happened and succeeded but it did um and so yeah i'm not going to say anything more but it's definitely interesting to watch well here, I need to make a plug. I've, I've mentioned this in the past, but the Bill Hader uh, series on Netflix. Uh, documentary what, Now. Documentary Now. I was going to say Documentary First. I'm like, that's not right. <laughs> That's us. <laughs> <laughs> they, they do a spoof of Wild Wild Country, and it's hilarious. So first watch Wild Wild Country and then watch the spoof, because then you'll really appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Awesome. All right. There you go. That is our segment, DocuView Deja Vu. Thank you for saying that so I don't have to. And uh, be sure to join us next week as we continue our limited series on distribution. And thank you for listening to Documentary First, where we believe everyone has a story to tell and you can be the one to tell it. Yes, you can. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to Documentary First. We really appreciate your partnership with us. We can't do any of this without you. So thank you for listening, donating, and following along on our journey. We are supported by generous donations from people just like you. To make a donation, visit thegirlwhowarefreedom.com or support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash documentaryfirst. To learn more about our other works in progress, visit documentaryfirst.com or follow Documentary First on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. This podcast was produced by Documentary First, edited and mixed by Jason Hoban, with music by Jeff Kurtenacker.